Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Death by Wall Street, written by Theodore Jerome Cohen, a dark murder mystery about white-collar greed. Death by Wall Street, Rampage of the Bulls, is a murder mystery based on real events. It is the story of how the oligarchs of Wall Street, doctors, and others in the pharmaceutical research profession having significant conflicts of interest and employees of two captured U.S. government agencies, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Food and Drug Administration, by design as well as by simply refusing to pursue the evidence of malfeasance provided to them, deny patients life-saving treatments that are demonstrated safe and effective in FDA-approved drug trials. When the severed head of a Wall Street stock analyst turns up spiked on a horn of the Wall Street bull, Detective Louis Martelli of the NYPD is assigned to track down the murderer. But why were this victim and the victims of two similar murders that followed singled out for execution? Martelli eventually learns the answer to this question and tracks down the killer but not before uncovering some of Wall Street's and the U.S. government's darkest secrets pertaining to the U.S. financial markets and the nation's health care practices. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Death by Wall Street. Chapter 1 Homicide Detective Specialist Lou Martelli pulled his black, unmarked Ford Crown Vic to the curb at the foot of the Bowling Green Bull, a 7,000-pound bronze sculpture that stands near Wall Street in New York City's Bowling Green Park. It was late winter, 2010. The weather was unusually warm for mid-March. It was difficult to miss the severed head of a man pinned to the left horn of the bull, blood dripping on the bricks below. The crimson pools of blood on the pavement pulsated with irritating regularity in the flashing light of the car's red dash-mounted rotating beacon. "'So what do we have here, Michael?' Lou bellowed, using both hands to lift his leg over the car's door jam. Martelli had been the crew member aboard a Black Hawk helicopter that was shot down in the April 2003 invasion of Baghdad during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Now... With the help of a prosthetic leg, he walked with a slight limp. He worked for NYPD under a special waiver issued by the mayor. Hey, he always reminded those who asked about his injury. At least I'm alive. That's more than I can say for the pilot and co-pilot who never made it out of the chopper. What he never talked about was the fact that he lost his leg attempting to save them. Lou worked hard to keep his weight down primarily to ease the burden on his legs. But at six foot two inches and 190 pounds, walking still was difficult. He was a big, muscular guy, the result of working out at the Dominant Fitness and Health Club in Brooklyn almost every morning before he went to work. But with a big workout came a big appetite, so it was a constant fight to stay away from the junk food that beckoned from the vending machine outside his office door. What do we have here? What do we have here? What the hell does it look like we have here, Sarge? It was Michael Antonetti, a deputy coroner. The running of the Fookin' Bulls in Pamplona, that's what we have here. 
Antonetti was standing on a short stepladder. He had just finished taking pictures of the top of the human head. Now, he was preparing to examine it more closely before preparing to remove and bag it for evidence. A lone crime scene investigator, CSI, from NYPD's crime scene unit, CSU, was busy snapping photographs of the blood-drenched bricks under the bull's head. Martelli crossed his arms, looked at the head, and nodded. This confirms what I've always said, Michael. If you live long enough, you'll see it all. Lou looked at his watch. Damn, it's 4 a.m., he yawned. I'd rather be back in bed with my wife, while the kids are still asleep, if you catch my drift. So, what can you tell me? Well, what you see is what we got, Antonetti deadpanned. Cut nice and clean, through and through, just like whoever did it was cutting up a cow or a hog. We're not that far from where some of the meat packers are located, you know. Great, thought Martelli. The last thing I need at the end of winter is having to spend time questioning people in the meatpacking district who work in the walk-in coolers and freezers. And before you ask, Antonetti continued, no, we don't have the body. God knows where the rest of this guy is. I suspect, but of course don't know, that it had been sliced and diced by now, with the pieces thrown either in the East or Hudson River. Maybe both. Whoever did this knew how to handle a professional butcher's knife, that's for sure. One thing I can tell you, though, the head hasn't been here long, no more than an hour. The surveillance cameras overseeing this area should give you a whole hell of a lot more information, including the time the head was stuck here, and maybe, even, a look at who created this bit of modern art. Martelli looked at the dead man's head. The eyes were wide open, staring down on the financial district, once America's mecca of optimism for the future of the country and the engine of its aggressive growth. Now, the street, as it was known, was the despised source of the country's ruin, home to the oligarchs who raped and pillaged Main Street while awarding themselves outrageous salaries and stock options, their rewards for having cheated, swindled, and defrauded the middle class of their savings and retirement funds. Any clue who it is, Michael? Can't tell from what I have here, Lou. The officer behind me spotted the head when he drove by on patrol, and he called dispatch. But the guy over there on the curb, the one who's puking his guts out, may know the Vic. He drove up a few minutes ago in that white BMW, got out, took one look at the head, threw up and staggered to the curb, I suspect he has a very good idea who the Vic is. Thanks, Martelli turned, pulled his notebook from the inside pocket of his suit pocket, and limped towards the man hunched over the curb. The guy was still spilling his breakfast onto the pavement, though, from the looks of it, he didn't have much more to heave. Lou placed him in his late twenties, five-five, with brown hair and brown eyes. No different from a thousand other men who plied the streets of the financial district in the course of the day. Whoever he is, thought Martelli, he's got expensive taste in clothes. The man was dressed in a tailored Italian charcoal wool two-button suit, Alberto Triassi, 1450 bucks. while his shoes were of the highest quality as well, 
house of Rinaldi, 780 bucks. Man, I'll never be able to afford clothes like that, not on a detective's salary. Martelli knew, just from the man's appearance, that whoever he was, he certainly was no low-level brokerage house backroom clerk. So, he began, do you always make it a practice of being down here this early? The man on the curb looked up through bloodshot eyes. He did not respond. Look, I know this isn't a good time, sir, but it would appear that you know the person on the bull back there. I'm Detective Lou Martelli, Manhattan Homicide. Whatever happened to your friend, I'm assuming he was a friend of yours, occurred within the last few hours, and the best thing that you can do to help us catch whoever was responsible for this heinous crime is to tell me as much as you can, and as quickly as you can. In cases like this, every minute counts. And based on what the coroner just told me, we're already at least an hour behind the perp. The man on the curb looked up and nodded. He put his right hand on the curb to steady himself and slowly rose to his feet. Taking a handkerchief out of his pants pocket, he wiped his mouth with it and composed himself. You're right, of course. I'm sorry. My name's Steve Jacobs. I work with John. John Williamson. The man pointed to the head on the statue. He's, he was, my co-worker at Bartlett, Klein, and Stevenson, the investment banking and securities firm down the street. We worked as financial analysts covering the biotech universe. I had decided to come in very early this morning to catch up on my work. There simply aren't enough hours in the day to do what my boss wants done. Tell me about it, Mr. Jacobs. So, about this Williamson fellow, when did you see him last? We had dinner late last night at Capricious. You mean the restaurant bar down the street? Yeah. John and I had just released an analyst report on one of the companies we follow, Polymorphic Biotechnology, and decided to catch a few drinks and dinner before heading home. We left the restaurant, I think, around 11 p.m. I used valet parking. John had parked his car down the street somewhere, so we said goodbye at the entrance of the restaurant, and he took off on foot. That's the last I saw of him. Do you recall what he was driving? Oh, yes, it's not easy to forget. He had a Ferrari 599 GTB Fiorana, red hot. I really liked that car, but it wasn't practical for me, what with me having a wife and child and living in the city. John, on the other hand, didn't have to worry about that. He was footloose and fancy-free, as they say. The man had more women and money than you would believe. You wouldn't happen to remember the license plate of his car, would you, sir? Actually, yes. It is one of those New York State vanity plates. Very easy to remember. It says, save. He told me it was meant as a joke on the little people. The ones who, no matter how hard they save, will never even come close to making it big. Sounds like he was the salt of the earth, sir. Jacobs looked down at his feet, suddenly realizing that he had painted himself with the same brush. Excuse me for a minute, sir, uh, while I call the car and the plate into headquarters. Lou Martelli grabbed the Motorola MTX 8000 police fire two-way radio from his waist, keyed up the transmitter, and conveyed the necessary information over the NYPD secure radio network to the dispatch operator. A few seconds later, he heard the APB broadcast for the murdered victim's automobile on the same portable radio. So, 
you had dinner, said goodbye, and that's the last you saw of him. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Sorry, I wish I could tell you more. I really do. John was an arrogant son of a bitch, that's for sure, but he didn't deserve this. Well, someone thought he did. Let me ask you this. What did you talk about at dinner? Oh, you know, the usual. I'm a mid-level stock analyst. I worked with John covering 15 biotechs, some of the big ones like Genentech, Amgen, companies like that, as well as companies such as Polymorphic Biotechnology and Behringer Biotechnology Systems that have drugs in various stages of clinical trials mandated by the Food and Drug Administration. John was the senior analyst. I supported him. He's the one who told me the tone we would take on any specific report we developed. Positive, neutral, negative, leading, of course, to a recommendation on the company we were analyzing. Buy, hold, or sell. We could make or break a company with those reports. One of the companies we follow is Behringer. They have a small molecule for breast cancer in phase 3 testing. Whoa, stop there, Mr. Jacobs. I don't have a clue as to what you're talking about. Look, all drugs go through three FDA-mandated phases of testing that must be performed before they can be approved for use by humans. Phase 1 trials are intended to gauge safety. Phase 2 trials look at the effectiveness of the drug. And Phase 3 trials examine the overall benefit-risk relationship so that FDA can develop labeling for use of the drug by physicians. The process can take up to 10 years to complete. Given that timeline, you can see why it's not unusual for companies to spend billions of dollars on the development of just a single drug. Even more depressing is the fact that for every 10 drugs that enter the development cycle, nine fail somewhere along the way. And people wonder why drugs are so expensive. Someone has to pay for all those failures just to get the one winner. I see what you mean. Okay. So, did anything unusual happen in the last month or so that caught your attention? Anything at all? Well, there was something about four weeks ago involving Behringer, which, as I mentioned, is one of the companies John and I cover. He paused. Well, at least we used to cover Behringer together until he was murdered last night. Four weeks ago, at management's direction... We worked at a feverish pace to update our previous analyst report regarding the efficacy of Behringer's drug, Herdesimax, for breast cancer. The report was released to the street three weeks ago on Friday morning, an hour before the market opened. Our preferred clients and subscribers were sent copies the night before, of course, just as we were leaving the office around 8 p.m. The report didn't say anything new. Mostly, it rehashed old data and information. We were told to ensure that the write-up had an overwhelmingly negative slant. The brokerage house never was positive on the drug, so I didn't give it much thought. Our specific instructions were to find fault with the Phase 3 data that already had been released. We were to take the position that the data simply did not support the conclusion that the drug, though safe, worked. Further, we were to imply that the final set of Phase 3 data which were expected to be released within a few months, would not alter that conclusion. Now, I have a master's degree in biotechnology with a minor in statistics. My independent analysis showed that the preliminary data were valid. Further, the results I developed agreed with those published in peer-reviewed journals by researchers working with the drug. 
Based on these results, I fully expected the final data set not only to confirm that the drug was safe, but also that it was an effective treatment for breast cancer. One, importantly, that had far fewer side effects than chemotherapy. Detective, the analysis I performed convinced me that Behringer's drug extended the median time of survival by a statistically significant margin over the current standard of care. I was sure of that. And here's the really important thing about their drug. It's a game changer. A what? Behringer's drug is revolutionary. Being a small molecule, the drug can be delivered in a pill. Detective, we're talking about nothing less than treating cancer with a pill. I would have thought this to be some of the most exciting news in medicine since, well, the development of the polio vaccines, especially since it appeared to me, at least, that the drug worked. And all our brokerage house did was tear down Behringer and her Decimax at every opportunity. It didn't make sense. Unless. Unless what? Unless someone didn't want her Decimax approved. And who might that be? Anyone with a competing drug for sale or with a new drug in the pipeline that was intended to compete with her Decimax. If her Decimax were to become the new standard of care for breast cancer then any drug starting a new trial to seek FDA approval to treat breast cancer of the HER2 positive variety would have to demonstrate it was substantially more effective than Herdesimax. Didn't you raise a red flag, say something to somebody? Are you kidding? I kept my mouth shut and my head down. In case you haven't noticed, this isn't the easiest market in which to find a new job. I'm not a fool. Not with the six-figure salary I'm making, the great benefits, and the unbelievable end-of-year bonus equal to 10 times my salary. If the street brought our negative story on her Decimax, Behringer and its shareholders would take a tremendous beating, and any hope that the company could raise money to complete the Phase 3 trial for this new drug at all of the participating centers might end up going down the toilet. Sounds like death by Wall Street to me. Jacobs looked down, embarrassed. Yeah, I guess you could say that. But again, he protested, that's not the position I personally would have taken. And I think my work was valid because there's another analyst at very reputable firm down the street who came to the same conclusion I did, except he published it. Anyway, you can imagine how popular we are right now when it comes to Behringer's stock. So, what happened after the report on Behringer's drug was released in late February? Well, the stock was hit hard. It had closed that Thursday night at $17.77 and held steady within a few pennies of the closing price in the after-hours market. On Friday morning, it gapped down on the opening to $11.99 before recovering later in the day to close at $14.94. Not a great day for the shareholders. Obviously, our report has significant impact on the market capitalization of the company. A lot of people lost a lot of money in Behringer that day, detective. And anyone who was short the stock made a real killing. Oops, that wasn't the best choice of words, was it? I'm sorry. Well, whether or not they own the stock, someone made a real killing all right, Mr. Jacobs. Now the question is... 
Who was angry enough about what happened to Behringer's stock price, if that was the event that triggered Mr. Williamson's murder, to kill him? And in such a barbaric way, Jacobs turned pale. He suddenly realized that he could be next, or perhaps his wife or his child might be the killer's next victim. After all, his name was on the Behringer Analyst Report as well. He turned white, started to gag, and collapsed on the curb, sick to his stomach again. Do you think my life is in danger, sir? I can't answer that, Mr. Jacobs. The more you can tell me now, the better chance I have of finding whoever did this. Do you want to continue, or would another time be better? No, no, let's continue. After the bottom dropped out of Behringer's stock three weeks ago, did you or Mr. Williamson receive any threats? Oh, there were the usual number of telephone calls to our office, I was told. Perhaps a few more than usual, with people calling us every name in the book. We're used to that. You can't win in this business, detective. Call it right and you're a hero. Everyone loves you. Disparage a stock and people hate your guts. Call it wrong and they want your hide. And you can never be 100% correct, no matter what you do. There are days when they want to parade you around town on their shoulders. Other days, they want to tar and feather you. But as far as telephone calls go, we could care less. Why? Because our telephone calls go through secretaries. They end up listening to the abuse. After a while, they politely tell abusive parties that their calls are being traced and that's the end of it. Those types of calls never get through to us. And what about the emails you received? Were any of them abusive or threatening? Every once in a while, one will reach us from a disgruntled shareholder. We were always very careful who had our email addresses. And if we received something abusive from someone whose email we wanted blocked, IT took care of it for us. But I never received an email that threatened my life. And John never mentioned receiving one that threatened his. People are pretty wise to the fact that putting something like that in writing could be grounds for legal action. Jacobs wiped his mouth with the sleeve of his suit coat. Do you happen to have a bottle of water in your car? I need to get this taste out of my mouth, detective. Martelli limped to his car and grabbed a fresh water bottle from the console. Here, take this. Jacobs twisted the cap off, took some water in his mouth, and after swishing it around for a few seconds, spit it out. Then he drank from the bottle. Thanks. Okay, I think I can go on, at least for a little while longer, detective. Mr. Jacobs, do you know anyone specifically who might have wanted to kill your co-worker? Someone who lost a lot of money because of something the two of you wrote? Perhaps someone he pissed off simply by saying something negative about one of their stocks. It didn't necessarily have to be Behringer. It could be any of the stocks you follow. Anyone who had a grudge against him, even say, a jilted girlfriend. Oh, there are plenty of people out there who would have liked to pump a few rounds into us. No investor likes to hear an analyst say anything bad about the products being developed by their company. Have you looked in on some of the investment-oriented message boards on the internet lately, detective? No, can't say that I have. I'm depressed enough just looking at what has happened to my 401k in the last three years. I even dare to open my monthly statements. The last thing I want to make time for is reading about other people's problems. Well, you're probably better off not doing that. Some of the people on the boards are doozies. They take everything personally. 
watch every penny move in their issues. If a stock they own drops two cents, they start screaming at their company's investor relations department, demanding IR issue a press release that provides news on a drug trial or some positive material event that not only will help their stock price recoup the two cents loss, but pump the price up another cent as well. I mean, it's unreal. Other posters are far more intelligent. They educate themselves, understand the technologies or drug actions involved, interpret the results of drug trials, and so forth. If they have the patience, they'll explain what they know to others on the message boards. But sometimes, the noise drowns out their messages, and often, the voices of reason not only are silenced, but leave the boards as well. I've seen it happen time and time again. And then you have people on the message boards who are just there to disrupt everything. Some of them simply take joy in making others miserable. They need serious medical help to correct their psychoses. The only ones sicker already are in the state's mental hospitals. I don't know about that, Mr. Jacobs. I see plenty of that type on the streets of New York every day. Yeah, ain't that the truth. But you also find people on these message boards whose sole job it is to disrupt the boards. They are hired, for example, by hedge funds or other large pools of money. Their job is to instill fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's called FUD in ways that scare the retail trade, the little people, into selling their holdings at depressed prices. The people spreading FUD want to drive down a stock's price because their employers are short the stock. That is... They will borrow stock in a company and then sell those shares with the intent of repurchasing them later at a lower price. Their employers need to have the price driven lower if they are going to make money. Hell, given the way that the markets are today and the lax oversight by the SEC, did you see that recently? Some SEC high-level employees were caught watching pornography on their screens instead of monitoring what was going on in the markets. Some short sellers even sell stocks short without going to the trouble of borrowing the shares beforehand. It's called naked short selling. Martelli's head was spinning. His eyes were starting to glaze over, but he let the analyst ramble on. Sheesh, he thought. There has to be a pony in here somewhere. You can make a lot of money in biotechs by playing these games, detective. In the field of biotechnology, failures are more the norm than the exception, believe me. You can make more money betting against a biotech company succeeding than on the possibility it will bring a product to market. Which is why the stocks in the biotech universe take investors for a real ride. These stocks are constantly being manipulated by hedge funds and the like, which bet against their success and lay off the risks they otherwise would incur through the options exchanges. Lots of dirty little secrets are hidden in Wall Street's closet, detective. If John's death involves one of the stocks we were following, be prepared to open a Pandora's box. A box filled with unbelievably complex and grotesque creatures that inhabit the investment world and that only are found within the dank, fetid sewers of Wall Street. Creatures that have so far evaded the eyes of the Security and Exchange Commission. Actually, given that agency's record over the past several years, including their pathetic handling of the Madoff-Ponzi scheme, that's not saying much. The fact is, though, everything I've mentioned is easily seen by any person who understands how the markets function. 
that the SEC hasn't moved to clean up Wall Street represents a failure of epic proportions. That may be, sir. But open it, I shall, if it means catching the killer. One more question, and I'll let you go. Can you tell me the name of Mr. Williamson's boss? What's his name? He's a she detective, and she's my boss as well. Her name is Tricia Fournier. Here's my card. You'll find her at the same address on the same floor. By the way, she's the one who sets our agenda, tells us what companies to follow, what our position should be on these companies, buy, hold, sell, why we are to take these positions, when we are to release our analyst reports and the like. She's the one who calls the tune, detective. I don't know where she finds the time to bone up on the things we have to know. I can barely keep up with what I have to do. And she is responsible for two other investment areas besides biotechnology. But she always seems to know what she wants and when she wants it. And importantly, she demands that we never do anything unless it's by her direction. I got my instructions from John. I get the picture, sir. Do you need me any more, detective? I'd like to go home and clean up. I still have a full day's work to do. One more question before you go, sir. Do you know anyone with surgical experience who might have known Mr. Williamson as well? Or maybe a hunter, for example? A deer hunter? Someone who might have had a grudge against him? No, I can't say I do, detective. Frankly, other than catching an occasional beer or late-night dinner with John, we pretty well kept our private lives to ourselves. Oh, he'd talk a lot about the women he was dating. Brag is a better word but he never mentioned that he was having a problem with anyone. Thanks, Mr. Jacobs. I think that will be all for now. I appreciate your help, and I'm sorry about your co-worker. You've given me a lot to chew on. Here's my card. Please send me a copy of the report that you released three weeks ago, as well as all previous reports on Behringer that you and the deceased prepared over the last two years. I may contact you later if something comes up or if I need more information. I'll get the reports into the mail today. Martelli turned and walked to the coroner, who by now had finished taking fluid and other samples. He and the CSI were removing the Vic's head from the horn of the bull. I'm leaving, Michael. Please, send me a copy of your report when it's completed. You'll have it the minute it's done, Lou. I'll bring it to you personally. I've seen a lot over the years, but never a killing like this. With so pointed a message... Human cruelty continues to astound me. And considering that this is post-9-11, this killer is audacious. I mean, really bold when you think about the number of surveillance cameras we have around here. Whoever did this is angry and highly organized. They would have to be to take the risks involved. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Death by Wall Street. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.